Welcome. This is the New Zealand Wine Podcast. I'm Boris Lamont. Thanks for joining us on our very first episode, in which we're speaking with Bob Campbell, arguably one of New Zealand's most widely known wine personalities, who is a master of wine, has taught thousands of people not only in New Zealand and Australia, but globally, and is a judge on a number of international wine awards. If you're needing to know anything further about something that you hear today, just look us up online. But for now, let's talk with Bob. Hello, Bob Campbell. Uh, Welcome to our inaugural New Zealand Wine podcast. And thank you very much for being here. It's great to have you with us. And given your extensive experience in the New Zealand wine industry over the past few decades and across the industry itself, I thought it would be great to get your perspective on where you've seen the wine industry come from and where you see it going. Well, I've joined the industry in 1973, which seems like an awful long time ago now, but, uh, uh, and the wine scene in those days was very, very different to the way it is now. Um, just to start with, 85% of New Zealand's wine production was fortified, that's ports and sherries. Uh, and uh, and I, I anyway joined as an accountant for Montana Wines and uh, not particularly f- for I was wasn't hadn't really targeted the wine industry but uh, uh, it seemed like an interesting uh, an interesting accounting assignment and pretty soon uh, the uh, uh, the complexities of wine began to really fascinate me and we. With a group of friends, we started a wine club in order to try and learn more. We were all keen, and uh, and that I guess sowed the seed for uh, for my future career. Um, in in those days, there was a controlled retail distribution, so the breweries really uh, controlled it. I, I recall that you had to buy, I think, nine liters of. Uh, of alcohol, if you wanted to uh, buy from a wholesaler, you could buy single bottles at retailers, and retail licenses were extremely hard to get through through the brewery control. So, if anyone applied for a retail license, there was huge opposition uh, from the breweries uh, to uh, to that license, and they were very hard to get and expensive to get as well. But uh, the, the demand for 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 wine and and the growing demand for good wine. Uh, really can be traced back, I think, to uh, the arrival of jet aircraft uh, because Kiwis suddenly could, it was feasible to fly to uh, to Europe and uh, and obviously the old classic OE, I did it myself, uh, yeah. and, and they'd bring back uh, a thirst for wine and an interest in wine and that sort of spurred on the local producers to try and sort of meet that demand in a in a cautious way at first but there was a as i say a growing demand for 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 high quality wine yeah Uh, local wine in those days was mostly made from hybrid grapes that's uh, grapes crossed between with european varieties and american varieties and that they produce pretty inferior wine the reason we had those rather inferior grapes is the industry started out in the in well in the mid 1800s uh, with European varieties. And then toward the end of that century, we had uh, the phylloxera epidemic, and phylloxera is a, a little root louse that, that uh, 
lives on the on the roots of the vine and eventually destroys it. And that root louse came from America, uh, but their their vines, the local American vines, had built up a, a natural resistance to the root louse. But the the louse destroyed all the vineyards of Europe. It was a hugely devastating. Uh, experience for the for the world wine industry in those days, and and New Zealand got whacked as well. Uh, now the, the way around it, they eventually discovered, was to take uh, European grape varieties and graft them onto American rootstocks, so that we, um, so that they had some resistance to this terrible louse. Uh, the alternative way was to cross American grape varieties with European grape varieties, and you'd breed an inbred resistance to the louse, but the price you paid, of course, was uh, inferior wine. And that's the path that, that New Zealand chose to take, uh, mainly because of our fortified production. It didn't really matter terribly much what the, what the uh, grapes tasted like because they were, going to, they were going to be transformed through long periods of barrel, of being fortified in long periods of barrel age. So, so we, got away with, uh, right. we got away with doing that. So the, 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 the subtleties of the, the, the wine weren't um, too important. <laughs> no, completely <laughs> lost, actually. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I remember also we had, um, at one stage, there was a limit of one bottle per customer of imported wine. I'm sure if I could get into a, a time machine and go back to the, to the early 70s, and taste the wines that I was drinking quite happily then, I'd be pretty horrified. Most of us <laughs> yeah. would. It was, it was a completely different planet. Yes. Um, yeah. I yeah. recall at Montana, Montana Dry Red was my uh, uh, stock favourite, and there was a Gamay Blanc. There's no such... There is a Gamay Grape, uh, mm. but Gamay Blanc, there's no such thing. Anyway, that's, that, that was my sort of staple diet. Right, yeah. Uh, pretty, yeah. pretty horrible, horrible wines in <laughs> <Yeah>. hindsight. <laughs> Also, in that in that days in those days, um, restaurants had only just been able to get licences. So, so that was new. People could at last have a glass of wine legally with their uh, with their uh, with their meal, which was a was a big advance. So. Yeah, and, and and I think um, for for you know for a lot of Kiwis, the um, how how relatively recent that was in our history is is not really um, appreciated. I think you know, whereas you know, you say people went to Europe and came back with this. Um, growing interest in wine because it's just part of the culture in, in Europe. You know, with a meal, you always have a glass of wine. That's just how it is. Yeah, and, and Australia got the jump on us because they had uh, a lot of Europeans uh, in their population who brought with them, uh, uh, you know, the, the wine was an important part of their life, yes. whereas, whereas in New Zealand we tended to have British people. And, yes. and beer was an important part of their life. So yep. hence the strength of the breweries and the, the relative lack of strength of, of wine industries. Right, okay. Yes. So, so Australia got a real jump. Um, and, and we uh, just muddled along until, as I say, the aircraft uh, allowed mm. easy access to Europe and, and the interest started to grow. Um, the, the, the highs during my period in the industry have, have been many. Um, uh, I think one of the big... Uh, the big highs was the the birth of Marlborough. I was working for for Montana then, and they were the first winery to uh, to launch into Marlborough, and uh, and that was nineteen seventy. That was nineteen seventy three, the year I started. In fact, I was down in 
the vineyard when they opened it. We, we had the vineyard opening with the directors of Montana and a whole lot of whole lot of special guests, um, and uh, it was a big day. Uh, that's that's when the first vines were planted, and sadly, uh, few of them survived because they had in that year the worst drought that the the region had ever suffered, and most of the vines died. They weren't irrigated as they are now, and they discovered right. that the only way forward was to uh, put an expensive irrigation, irrigation to keep the vines going. So yeah. it really was another five or six years before the vines started to become established, properly established, and and, and wine could be made. And, and it was a, the wine that, that uh, Marlborough produced in these, uh, from its first vintages were was uh, was very exciting. It really instantly started winning gold medals at wine shows. It didn't have to compete with terribly much in those days, and uh, and it was such an exciting time. Um, Sauvignon had really never been grown to any great extent in New Zealand, so Sauvignon Blanc was uh, was was part of the new mix, and there were less satisfactory grape varieties planted there as always in that experimental phase. It's, so, so was was it, were there quite a few varietals bought out and, and a few different ones tried before Sauvignon was sort of seen as something that could be grown quite well in that, in that part of the country? Yeah, well, of course, we had um, uh, back in, oh, what's the, in, in 18, about 1819, 1820, uh, uh, Good, complete, pretty, pretty well complete range of of top European grape varieties were brought out uh, to to New Zealand and uh, and and they survived and 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 Australia too. So, so initially we had the right stuff, mm. and it was only through phylloxera that sort of devastated that. Okay. Um, so, so the industry started to revive uh, really about 1973, about the time I joined. Uh, with I think Nobelos was one of the leaders, and they, uh, they, they, we had a, a, a viticultural research station that was government owned, yeah, and or government run funded, and the um, they they would bring in uh, cultivars, uh, new varieties from from overseas, and and make sure that they were uh, established and clean. They weren't going to in, infest the country with any other bugs. Uh, and and so that yeah that all started to happen in the early seventies yeah yeah so in in Montana in addition to Sauvignon we started I, just from memory now which is uh, fading a little bit uh, we we had Cabernet Sauvignon we had uh, Chardonnay certainly Riesling you know all the the, the usual uh, yeah suspects yeah sure yeah, yeah. All the prime varieties Cabernet was the wrong grape variety it's uh, never really worked in Marlborough for that part of the that part of New Zealand. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, I guess I guess another high, and there's quite a few, <laughs> uh, was Cloudy Bay, which putting New Zealand on the world wine map. And they launched in uh, in '85. I think that was their first vintage, and uh, th- that sort of coincided with a uh, a period of very high inflation. Um, I know the inflation rate for borrowed money then went over the 20% mark, so it was pretty tough for that brand new winery that uh, uh, that launched in in Marlborough. In fact, they 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 started out as a uh, just bought in grapes, purchased grapes, and had it made by contract uh, by with Corbins uh, made, made the wine under contract. Okay, uh, and and uh, at that time, New Zealand had an export market, particularly in the UK. But not much of an export market, and and the customers 
complained that New Zealand wine was too expensive. And I, one of the importers into the UK is a Kiwi lady, Margaret Harvey, who's now uh, an MW. She, she said it was very hard for her to make inroads into the UK market until Cloudy Bay came along. And they really put... Uh, Sauvignon Blanc on the map and put New Zealand on the map too with some very, very clever marketing and some very, very good wine. Right, right. So a, com- a combination of ex- producing a good product um, but getting the marketing right and the pricing. I, I Absolutely, right. yeah. And 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 uh, Margaret commented to me at the time, she said uh, that uh, suddenly, almost overnight, once Cloudy Bay landed, uh, Sauvignon Blanc so New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc wasn't too expensive. New Zealand wines weren't over the top in terms of price, so people were happy to pay. Uh, price. And the, the, one of the one of the great uh, uh, marketing uh, techniques, if you could call it that, was um, short delivering. So if if a customer wanted ten cases of Cloudy Bay Sauvignon, they might get five or three or four or something. Yeah. Uh, so it just kept demand very very high. And uh, and made the wine very special. Anything that's in short demand, of course, people get up to all sorts of tricks trying to get more than Trump, their allocation, yes. and uh, yes. uh, and that really really helped a lot. But, right. Okay. Th- but uh, ultimately, it was the quality of the wine that uh, that that really made a difference. Yeah. And primarily into the UK that that first that, at those, in those export. days. Yeah. The UK were was sort of people like us. Mm-hmm. So so we had the strong bond with. With Britain and and uh, and it was relatively easy to to do business over there. We could speak the same language. We were ethnically from the same group and uh, an, an existing Sauvignon drinking market there. Yeah, not much of a Sauvignon drinking market. Sauvignon was uh, France with uh, Sancerre and yep. Puy Fumé had a uh, produced some good Sauvignon, but it wasn't really a, a popular variety in the New World. I think in the U.S. About that time, um, Robert Mondavi had his Fumé Blanc, an oak age Sauvignon, that that sort of really made a bit of headway. But it wasn't a big deal until until uh, New Zealand, until Marlborough Sauvignon uh, came on the scene, and right. uh, and people just scrambled to they couldn't get enough of it, which mm. was fantastic. Um, the other the other significant uh, new wine launch that made a big difference to New Zealand was. In 1982, Tamata launched uh, their first vintage of Coleraine, and, and it was just an extraordinary wine in its time. It was so much better than anything that had gone before it. Uh, Coleraine's a blend of, of Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and, and uh, perhaps another one or two varieties. And, it, and it, it, um, New Zealand Cabernet until that time had mostly been just not properly ripe. It was pretty green and hard and and increasing amounts of Merlot were being used to sort of dilute the the uh, the less than satisfactory side uh, characteristics of of Cabernet. Yeah. Um, but but Coleraine in '82 showed the rest of the industry that uh, that New Zealand was was capable of making really good red wine. We had a reputation, thanks to Sauvignon, as being a, a white wine country, and everyone acknowledged that we could make good white, but uh, but were less sure about our ability to make decent red. And, and for those who may not know, the uh, Tamata. So we're talking about the, these were grown in Hawke's Bay, then. This. Yeah. 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 They were a prestige winery. They always started. They started. Were launched. Uh, it's an old winery that was purchased by uh, by John Buck and his family, and um, and uh, with high aspirations. So they were they right from 
the start they plan to make uh, seriously top wine. Mm-hmm. Um, the other uh, that same in that same year, the other uh, significant release was a gold medal for Saint Helena Pinot Noir. Now Saint Helena, which doesn't exist anymore, um, Saint Helena a, was a, a Christchurch winery, and uh, the the Mundy brothers uh, owned it, and they had. Um, uh, they produced a, a, a Pinot Noir from a, a vineyard that I th- believe is still there, and it, which would make it one of the earliest Pinot Noir vineyards in New Zealand. Okay, and, and close to Christchurch? No, yeah, well, the, the, the vineyard was out on Banks Peninsula, oh, uh, okay. just at the base of Banks Peninsula. But the uh, but when you're heading to Wipera uh, uh, from Christchurch, about, I don't know, about 15 minutes out of town, uh, that was the uh, Saint Saint Helena Winery, and so that really uh, indicated to a lot of aspiring red wine makers, and particularly Pinot Noir makers, that uh, we could we could make the right stuff, and it really launched a, uh, a lot of uh, uh, effort into trying to produce uh, good Pinot Noir, and they they succeeded too. Um, a Pinot Noir celebration in 2001, look, great moments in New Zealand wine. I mean, that was the beginning of a, of a very important series of, of, of celebrations that attracted a, a really uh, a top international audience, and they've continued to this day. I think we've got every three or four years that we have a, uh, an event down there, and the next one is in 2017, and that really gave us a boost. It was a chance for all the Pinot Noir makers to get together in one place and try each other's wines, and it was a chance for them to get audited, if you like, by these international palates who who tasted their wines and made very uh, uh, upfront comments about them. So that, that, was, that was great. Uh, in that same year, in 2001, the other big important event was the adoption of screw caps or the beginning uh, the beginning of our screw cap uh, initiative okay and and in those days uh, it, it began very cautiously and it was very divisive uh, in the industry those who favored screw caps and those who favored corks nowadays it's uh, 99.7% of all New Zealand wine is under screw wow, is cap, right? I understand. Yeah. Mm, mm. Uh, so it's uh, fairly a fait accompli, but there's still many, many producers use uh, cling on to corks. But so I, so it, was New Zealand um, a bit of a leader in that innovation, or was it happening a lot elsewhere uh, around the world as well at the same time? Yeah, Australia really. I, we have to give Australia the credit for starting it. And in, in yeah. the year before, uh, in 2000, a group of uh, of producers in the Clare Valley in Australia and terribly dissatisfied with corks and they decided to get together and and put their riesling under screw cap and uh, and they they were nervous about it all uh, some of them most of them did it a little little under screw cap a little under cork to see how the market uh, accepted them and it was very much a uh, a nerve-wracking time but they they were accepted they were well accepted, and that was enough, that gave strength to the Kiwis to, right, okay. to actually try the same thing. Yeah, and I think it's a marvelous. Um, it's 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 been a marvelous move. It's been marvelous for New Zealand wine, in my view. Uh, just interesting. Last year, uh, Kumu River, uh, uh, which makes extraordinarily good Chardonnay, they they've got a, a fan of theirs. Uh, a uh, there's a prestigious British. Uh, imported wine imported distributor called Far Vintners, 
and the the principal of Farvinters is a big fan of of Kumu River Chardonnay, and he he put together at his own expense a tasting where he took four vintages, I think it was four vintages of Kumu River Chardonnay, and matched each vintage with about four or five French white burgundies, which is Chardonnay as well. And they were served blind to an extremely illustrious audience of, uh, of critics. And, and in uh, three of the, three of the uh, tastings, Kumu River came first, and in the, in the fourth tasting, they came first equal. Right, and and I said to winemaker the Kumu's winemaker Michael Brykovich, uh, was he surprised at that result, and and his answer was interesting. He said no, uh, they they use corks, we use screw caps, and so suggesting that that made a critical difference, and I believe it does. I right. yeah, I think with cork, even if you don't get cork taint, that musty, uh, wet cardboard character that affects about five to ten percent uh even if you don't get that the wines are dull particularly white wines by uh, contact with the wood and the cork right okay. and and they they have this sort of variation from from bottle to bottle that's yeah. uh, unacceptable so yeah so screw caps was a a wonderful initiative for for, for new zealand starting yeah. in 2001 and and probably um helpful with the exporting as well with you know, well, no, it initially hindered. <laughs> because, oh, because of the market. Because resistance. people said, "Yeah, yeah no, yeah. Ooh, no, we want, we like your wine. We want to buy it under cork." Right, and and, um, and mo- most of the producers said, "No, we're not supplying under cork. You take it under screw cap or nothing." Mm. And and they turned pretty quickly once they got used to the the concept and yeah. saw how good the wines performed. Right. Yeah. yeah, the proof was in the drinking. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Um, other high points, we've got numerous international awards that have steadily given New Zealand wine a higher and higher profile uh, and, uh, and, and have seen our wines adopted by every country in the world. I mean, we really, we really are seriously on the, on the world map at the moment. Uh, I think the formation of New Zealand wine growers uh, was, was a big deal, and I'm not sure about the state, but I think it was 1976, and they were then called... Uh, Wine Institute of New Zealand. They've since changed their name, uh, and they've been a, a wonderful unifying force for the for the wine industry. They've done lobbying, uh, Parliament, and as well as uh, a fantastic job in marketing New Zealand wine to the to the wider world. So, so that that's been a, a critical uh, uh, aspect of of New Zealand's success. Mm. Uh, and recently, they've, we've seen the, the New Zealand's grape growers and winemakers now come under one heading. There used to be the Grape Growers Association, and then there was New Zealand uh, wine growers. Okay. But now they're all together under one banner, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's a, uh, I mean, quality comes from the vineyard, and they've got to work together to really make everything uh, move in the right direction. That's good stuff. Mm. Uh, the other thing, sustainable wine growing. The New Zealand wine growers have uh, launched this initiative called Sustainable Wine Growing to try and and they've actually pressured uh, the, the country's winemakers into uh, being much more environmentally conscious about the way we make wine, uh, and th- this is all uh, building defences against any potential backlash uh, uh, because um, for the for the uh, for the less satisfactory um, 
uh, principles that are used in industries throughout the world. Okay. But nowadays they've got uh, 94% of growers uh, or of the of the vineyard land in New Zealand is is um, uh, grown under or the grapes are grown under uh, sustainable wine 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 growing, and organic is 6.5%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but they have uh, plans on getting that to 15%, uh, and uh, and it's all moving. Uh, rapidly in the right direction, led by Central Otago. That's the uh, strong, oh, right? strongest region. For, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's rather easier to grow wine under uh, under uh, uh, organics and central than it is in 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 sort of perhaps more well watered uh, regions. The biggest problem with with uh, organics is weed control, okay. and. Uh, uh, and that really is a problem. So instead of using chemicals, they've got to actually physically remove the weeds, and uh, and that's a, a a costly and difficult sort of thing to achieve. But but they, it's a, a simpler task in in central, and biodynamic, the sort of rather more mystical uh, approach, which embraces organics and a whole lot more. Uh, I think one central Otago winemaker calls it the Harry Potter school of, of yeah. grape growing, which is rather nice. Uh, that's uh, 0.2%, 0.2%, so very small, but yes. uh, but once again, like organics, growing rapidly in the right direction. I, I'm very much in favour of all uh, forms of, uh, of sustainable wine growing and organic and biodynamic. Yeah, and like any change, I mean, it just takes time, doesn't it, too? Yes, to it move does. away from what you're used to and yeah. work out what's a viable alternative. <clears throat> Yeah, wine, uh, winemakers, uh, it's natural, it's a human human nature to choose the easiest path. Mm. And uh, But but having had a go at the slightly more difficult path and finding out it's not as difficult as they actually think it is, uh, thought it was, uh, more and more winemakers are, are actually... Uh, mm are actually going down that road, which is fantastic. Um, the other high point, I've got to say, and this has just just happened, is we've just cracked through the $1.5 billion of exports. Right, okay. And I think that makes New Zealand uh, wine the sixth largest, sixth most exported commodity. So by commodity, that doesn't include uh, tourism and some of these more abstract things. Yeah. Uh, but but it... Uh, but but that's a that's a great achievement because in 1973 we had no export market at all really there was very, very little I think the first ex- wine that did get exported was 63 and that was 12 cases to Canada by Corbins but uh, but it's it really didn't uh, it didn't amount to anything in those days and and a lot of people believed that we would never have a wine industry we'd never have an export wine industry and that how wrong were they you know mm. it's just uh, mm. been fantastic growth no well it, it's um it's a good number for a country like New Zealand that's a um, that's quite a significant amount yes it is and it's a challenge too because we've 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 facing this swinging exchange rate which makes it can make it very difficult for exporters having having to uh, you know having your price go up and down all the time and and sometimes when the rate really goes against us you know I'm sure that they're selling at a loss some of them at least right yep um, what are the lows try and think of the lows I, I'm a cup half full man so I dwell on the low point um, I, I looked at at the list of producers in 1971 I've got a an, an annual a wine growers annual report this, just this morning, and there were 150 producers then, 
and uh, more than half of, the, of those 150, original 150, have gone out of business. Okay. Uh, and and it is extremely difficult to make it in in winemaking. I mean, it's it's full of very passionate individuals uh, and who just absolutely love what they do. But most would acknowledge that it's a, a at best a pretty marginal business. They've got the, to contend with variable weather conditions at vintage. Mm. So, uh, they've got uh, the exchange rate that I already mentioned. I mean, it's just just uh, so challenging to export in that environment where the dollar goes up and down as as uh, erratically as it does. Uh, and they're in a fashion industry. Uh, and if you think of the garment industry, uh, if they want to have a clear out in the garment industry, they can drop their prices to half and still and still turn a profit. But the, the margins in, in, in the wine industry are so small that... That we just they just don't have that room to move. Mm. So, so if if all the elements turn against them, it, it's just impossible to survive. Particularly for the smaller producers. Yeah. yeah. So the romanticism of having a boutique winery can be um, can disappear quite quickly over a few years once you've added up your investment and you're still trying to make a name and sell your product. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. They say, how do you make a uh, a small fortune in the wine industry, and the answer is you start out with a large fortune. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is very difficult. It's very sad to see uh, to see uh, uh, the odd winery slip below the waves, as, as happens from time to time. Mm. And and I think we uh, the, the, we had a, a lot of stress and strain in 1986 with an overproduction, where uh, particularly in the big companies, uh, I think they lost several million dollars in a single year, and their viability was threatened. I think delegates went into receivership. Villa Maria went into receivership. And at that point, the government stepped in, and uh, they they did, had a paid, a sponsored sort of vine pull. So uh, they paid so much per acre or hectare for every uh, every uh, area of vines that was uprooted, that, uh, that were uprooted. And, they, uh, and, and that was... Uh, in the long term, very, very healthy for New Zealand. We got rid of a whole lot of very marginal grape varieties and very marginal uh, vineyards and, and, right. and emerged from that, uh, from that 86 vine pool so much stronger. Uh, and, uh, and it just w- went from, from strength to strength after that. Uh, and then we had the, the, uh, the Labour government uh, under uh, David Longy uh, Abolish subsidies, and the farm farmers got hit with the same abolition of, of of subsidies. And everyone said, "Oh, we won't survive." You know, but what what they all did, what they certainly did in the wine industry, was they looked at their their production and they said, "Well, we we're not making much money on without subsidies on on producing uh, low level wine, low cost wine. We need to put our efforts into making high quality wine," and that just changed, transformed the industry by focusing on the top end. You know, New Zealand wine is expensive in, in overseas markets, but, but they, they buy it. And um, we, at one stage, I'm not sure whether this is still the case in the UK, but we were the most expensive, uh, we had the most expensive average bottle price of any, com- any country. Um, and, and the same is true in the US. And, and I think it's because we, we just lack the underclass of very, very cheap wine rather than we're charging uh, like a, a wounded bull at the top. Right, because there would have been a lot of um, more land planted uh, since that wine pool. Um, but are you saying that was then in 
areas and with varietals that had higher yields, higher financial yields. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, anyway, that that had a had a and, and then the other low um, uh, that happened more recently was the surplus in 2008 we just had this enormous vintage and uh, supply or demand had always exceeded supply and then suddenly the the position was reversed in 2008 and and the uh, uh, price of of vineyard and price of wine just dropped uh, dramatically Uh, and that was a real shock to the industry a real wake-up call and once again like the government vine pool i think ultimately it's probably going to strengthen us but at the time it was pretty tough and certainly some producers did go out of business uh, but we've uh, uh, th- those that are still in business uh, I, I think as i said will ultimately be be stronger mm. should talk about the future what's yes. ahead and that's all very speculative of course um i think climate change poses a few a few challenges right, okay yeah uh it's not affecting us as much in the southern hemisphere as it is wine producers in the northern hemisphere, which I suppose is a good thing for us. But it certainly will uh, will um, uh, have a, have an impact. And you wonder how long uh, will it be before uh, the the character of Marlborough Sauvignon changes, and we may have to look for a for some sort of alternative there if we want to really uh, uh, have a competitive uh, export leader overseas. So. Right. Right, okay. That's a big problem. Yeah, um, potentially, I suppose, it may then open up other regions for um, for wine growing and wine production. Yeah, well, regions with more diversity probably will, will have less of a struggle. Mm. I mean, if we take Hawke's Bay, for instance, uh, uh, they'll uh, just move to, right now, Cabernet Sauvignon. You have to be very uh, careful where you plant Cabernet Sauvignon to get it properly right. But it'll be easier to find suitable sites as the the uh, yes. climate gets a, a little bit warmer yeah. so so in the short or medium term at least that's going to probably do them no harm mm. um, but uh, yeah each each uh, uh, region is going to have to uh, perhaps revise its its uh, its vineyard mix mm. um, geographic indications uh, is another thing that's going to it's in the wind now that's going to clear up blurry boundaries uh, and and possibly remove some trade barriers by blurry boundaries. I mean, uh, it's going to define regional and sub-regional boundaries uh, f- for the wider international market and protect our brands. There's nothing yeah. to stop anyone coming out with a. Well, I was going to say Bannockburn, but of course they've got a Bannockburn, <laughs> Bannockburn in Victoria, so right. they've they've yes. got a district there that's well known, yes. a wine district well known. But but uh, if we take something like Wairarapa, for instance. Uh, there's an initiative on now to actually drop the wire wrapper. It's a, and wire wrapper at present is the larger uh, sub-region that includes Martinborough. But under the new initiative, we, we'll have uh, Wellington Wine Country will embrace the whole lower part of that uh, North Island yep. and, and, and include Martinborough, as a sub-region, but also Gladstone and Masterton. So they'll, they'll become the three sub-regions under the banner Wellington Wine Country. And mm. I, think, I think that's a good thing because there's a lot of confusion that exists uh, right now, so it's going to clear all that up. Mm. Uh, and and uh, when I said trade barriers, Felton Road had a Riesling recently that, that got rejected uh, f- 
from their uh, imp- by their uh, by the EU uh, uh, for being 0.1 percent under the minimum alcohol level uh, for Riesling from a non-specified region. So we didn't. If 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 Bannockburn or Dash Central Otago was a was a uh, a geographic indication, a formal had been formally recognised as a, a and a, as an international uh, region, they would have been fine. But so right. a bit of a trade barrier there. Right. Okay. So do you think that'll happen? That they'll become recognised regions? Yeah, it's yeah. underway now. The government's yeah. given it the big nod. Right. It's taken a heck of a long time, but. Uh, but it's just going through Parliament now. So it's it, and then each each region and sub region, it's up to them to to register their uh, their boundaries and so on. And and will it get more defined than that? Like Felton Road, uh, for example, could be an example of something that's quite a defined region. Then, yeah, or I think I, I well, I, it's hard to guess which way it's going to go. But um, I think we'll see Bannockburn, which is the the. Hmm. the Subregion that Felton Road exists uh, b- become recognised. Whether Felton Road or re- regions within Bannockburn mm. also uh, get re- recognised as thinking a, as of others like maybe Gimlet Gravels or well, that's true. Yeah, that's mm. an obvious sitter, isn't mm. it? Uh, mm. Mm. So yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a logical mm. uh, candidate. Yeah, mm. so it'd be interesting to see. I'm I'm really looking forward to the the whole thing because it's just going to clarify a whole lot of sort of rather woolly areas right. uh, around the country, and that's uh, not yeah. a bad thing. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, uh, looking at also at the future, I think the challenge is to keep Sauvignon Blanc popular and profitable. Uh, it's so, out, so far out in front in terms, of, uh, in terms of, I think it's something like 83% of all wine exports so it's a right. seriously it's the, a the exports of Sauvignon on its own is significantly more than a billion dollars. Mm. Uh, so we don't want that to crash overnight. Mm-hmm. It would have devastating effects on the industry. So we've got to keep that alive and healthy and growing. And it is at the moment. It's almost bigger than Ben Hur. So that's a good thing. But uh, but we've got to look f- for the know, into the well. future and just yeah. yeah have a successor and. Mm-hmm. Um, New varieties, you know, we're always assessing new varieties. A couple of uh, ones that appeal to me, Alvarino and uh, Fiano are a couple of new ones. Fiano is very tiny at this stage, but uh, I like the sort of wine it's producing under New Zealand conditions. But we'll, 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 we've got to keep keep experimenting and uh, and and looking ahead there. And uh, in the future, the exchange rate, we're still going to be at the mercy of the ex- exchange rate. It's such a difficult thing. So the New Zealand swings in the New Zealand dollar are going to produce swings in the fortune of the of the New Zealand wine industry, and there's probably not a heck of a lot we can do about that. Mm, mm, mm. Just the reality of the of being an exporter trading environment, yeah. Mm, mm. Okay, fantastic. Well, that's um, that's a really good uh, overview and insight into uh, New Zealand wine over the last few years. Thank you very much, Bob. My pleasure. It's been great having you on. Thanks. We've just been talking with Bob Campbell, one of New Zealand's foremost wine personalities and educators. You can find out more about Bob Campbell online at bobcampbell.nz. If you'd like to check out some other of the New Zealand wine podcasts, just have a look for us online. And also, while you're there, have a look for podcast.nz for some of the other great podcasts in our stable. We look forward to your company again shortly. Hey, corner my, bye for now.